Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light. And following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. We are in John chapter 3. So if you want to turn John 3, uh, we're wrapping up John 3. We have been in John for several weeks now, a couple months now, actually. Uh, we'll be in John for the next uh, several years. And, uh, and, and we are taking our time. And one of the things we've looked at already is kind of what John's doing, uh, setting up uh, this, in these first four chapters, setting us up for the rest of the gospel. And he's bringing out these big themes like grace and truth and Jesus's kind of two-sided approach approach to ministry, embodying this gracious, this extravagant grace that he shows uh, at the wedding in Cana where he makes all this great wine, and then his real seriousness about sin and truth when he goes into the temple and busts things up. And, uh, and so in the midst of that, we have this story uh, about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you've been here since the beginning, was a pretty main character in the first couple chapters and, uh, and is kind of a wild man, right? Lives in the wilderness, uh, wears basically a burlap sack and what was apparently crazy in that time, a leather belt. Uh, but he, we showed some pictures of him, doesn't comb his hair much, looks kind of like a guy you might see in Cal Anderson Park, you know, in, in, uh, in Capitol Hill, um, but uh, was crazy, ate locusts uh, and honey and uh, was just really living on the fringes of society in a number of ways, right? Well, he disappeared for a bit, and now he's back. And this is kind of John the Baptist's final ride. And it's a, it's a story kind of squeezed in between Nicodemus and uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, which we'll look at next week. And I think there is a message for us here, specifically in Seattle, and I know a message uh, that was very timely and relevant for me this week as I prepared it, which God often does. Sometimes I think actually uh, when I'm preparing a message that God is uh, kind of leading us towards particular passages for my own soul, and you guys are kind of the secondary beneficiaries of what God's doing in me, and this was that kind of uh, week. So... Let's read John 3, starting in verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. That's gonna happen. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Talking about Jesus. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Jesus, tonight, may we hear your words in a way that cuts to our hearts, convicts us, opens our eyes to see ourselves more clearly, and draws us to you. May we see you more clearly. May we see the life that you've set before us more clearly. May we see our priorities. May we see uh, the, the efforts of our hands and the anxiety of our hearts and the, the, what consumes our minds. May we see that more clearly this evening. Lord, may my words be your words. Please speak through me. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here's my uh, central argument for tonight. Ambition is poison. Ambition is poison. It's poison for your soul and it is poison for your work. In Seattle, this is quite the statement to make. Many of you are here because you are ambitious people. You are here because you have accomplished a great deal. You are here because you work hard and you like to work hard. You have accomplished much and you like to accomplish much. So to hear the words of John the Baptist here, the, the testimony of John the Baptist about the way he sees his role in view of Jesus and to hear that he's going to argue that ambition is poison, or at least I'm gonna argue that ambition is poison, might be jarring to some. So here's what I want to do first. I want to be clear about what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that hard work is poison. I'm not saying that sacrifice for your work. I'm not saying that making hard decisions that have hard and, and, and impactful ramifications for other people is poison. I'm not saying competition is poison. I'm not saying excellence or accomplishment or success or education or praise or promotions or long hours or loving your job is poison. I'm not saying any of that's poison. But I am saying ambition is poison. And here's what I mean by ambition. I mean this, that ambition is first and foremost about outcomes. It's about the end. It's about what you're going to do. And then two, it's about identity. So it's about what you're going to be. And the things that drive us, that ambition that drives us to do all these things, to work hard, to seek excellence, to make hard decisions, to work long hours, to do all of these things that are not in and of themselves poison, they are not in and of themselves sin. But when you wrap all that up into ambition, and we'll talk about what that means as we go along, but when we wrap all that up into ambition, it is poison for your soul, it is poison for your work, and in the end, it is sin. Here's why. First, ambition is fundamentally competitive. Ambition is fundamentally competitive. Ambition puts us at odds with other people. It defines our relationship to our colleagues, our coworkers, and others in our industry. They become the competition. 
We even use that language, right? Like we, we know who our competition is. In fact, sometimes when I sit with you and talk about your work, I will ask you, who's your competition in that space? Like trying to understand what you do for work and kind of over against who you're, who you're competing with. But that, that defines relationship, right? And when, when competition isn't just that other company trying to do the same thing, but it's actually your coworker and your colleague and they become your competition, that fundamentally defines the relationship you have with that person. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, maybe you've heard of it, um, talks about pride. And he's one of the best chapters in all of Mere Christianity is about pride. So I want to read to you a section from that chapter. But everywhere he talks about pride, I'm going to substitute the word ambition. And so what, what I want to do is not change C.S. Lewis's words, because that would be heresy. It's Father, Son, Spirit, Lewis. And I don't want to do that. Um, but what I do want to do is just ask you to ask yourself, uh, does this, is this true about ambition too? To the degree that you've experienced ambition or you have ambition in your heart, just, just maybe ask yourself if this is true. So here we go from Lewis. Ambition. Ambition gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are ambitious about being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're ambitious about being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be amb ambitious about. It is the comparison that makes you ambitious. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, ambition has gone. And I wonder, like at a practical level, right? What, what I experienced after the morning service, we got a ton of questions for our Q&A after the morning service, and they were all about this. They were all kind of trying to parse out what I was saying and try to tease out, well, okay, but, but if I think about it this way, or if I do it this way, or if I want this thing, or if I'm trying for that thing, and, and there's an there's amount of work that has to go inside you that I can't do, that you have to ask yourself, is this true about me? I can't answer that question. But you can, to say, is, is this desire, this ambition that I have in me, and that you might say, it's just, I just wanna be great. I just wanna do great things. Okay, but answer this for yourself honestly. If you took out the element of competition, would you still feel the same? Would you still do the same? Would you still think of it the same? If there was no one to defeat. See, I wouldn't. When, when I say that this message is for me, it's because this, this is all for me. Right? Like I'm just preaching to myself here. I am as competitive a person as you will ever meet. I've talked about this before, about how God called me to be a pastor simply because there's nothing, there's, it's not allowed, you're not allowed to be competitive. Right? Like I can't look at other churches and be like, all right, what's up? We're gonna beat them, right? Or we're gonna take them out. I can, but it's frowned upon right? It's generally frowned upon. I was telling somebody this one time and they said, well, you can be competitive with Satan. And I said, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Don't ever say that to me again. That's so lame, right? So I, I, I'm super competitive and I love to win, but here's the thing. I want to win and I want you to know I won and I want you to know you lost to me, right? Like this is what I want. I love scoreboards. I love rankings. I love it. I genuinely do. 
So if you took out the, com the competition part of it, it leaves it when people say, well, let's just play a game for fun. That's stupid. There's no such thing. You can't play games for fun. You play games to win or lose. There's no such thing as playing for fun and not keeping score. It's just not a thing. Right. So, so competition is a core piece of this. I experienced it this week. Um, my son, my, old, my oldest son is eight and we're, we're signed up for Little League. And, uh, I got an email saying we were having a skills day for Little League, and I thought, great, it's like a spring training thing, we'll go out, and they're gonna teach the kids you know, a real refresher course on how to throw and how to hit, because they're eight and they're terrible. And so I, we show up at Garfield High School, and uh, I told my son, hey, it's gonna be fun, you're gonna you know, learn how to do some stuff. And, and I, I show up and all the kids had numbers on their backs. And that was like my first clue that I didn't know what I was doing. And so I walk up and I'm like, hey, uh, we're here for skills day? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, he's on the roster, you know, gets us all set up. And I'm like, why do they have numbers? I don't understand. And he's like, oh, it's just our way to kind of keep track of the kids. And a dad pulled me aside and goes, hey, skills day, it's Seattle for tryouts. They just won't call it tryouts because it's Seattle and that's too mean. And so they call it skills day, right? But what they've done is just throw these kids into a gauntlet unbeknownst to themselves, right? And so this, this dad tells me, I didn't tell my son, of course. I just went, okay, buddy, have fun, you know? But immediately, it's on. Right, because now there's a competition involved and, and, and I am living it via my son by proxy and so I start looking around at the other dads just to kind of gauge the genetic upside of these kids <laughs> that, that Cole is in, in competition with and I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I'm feeling pretty good about his chances based on what I see in, the, his, in their parents. And, um, and so I'm, I'm watching and, you know, he's doing pretty well, you know, and he's younger. So I realized it was tryouts for the league above his age bracket. So it's like the nine and 10 league. And so, you know, one of the, the, the guy in charge goes, well, he's eight. So maybe, you know, maybe he, he can stay and maybe he gets pulled up to a, uh, another league that happens sometimes. And I'm like, oh, it's happening. <laughs> oh, that's definitely happening for my son or else or else we've lost, right? Like, so, so it just set a baseline of competition. Immediately, these other dads weren't like, guys, I could hang with them. They were the enemy in very real ways, okay? So it sets up this competition. Now, we, we may look at this passage in particular and go, well, but John the Baptist is comparing himself to Jesus, right? His disciples had come to him and gone, hey, John, there's that Jesus guy is like doing your thing. You're John the Baptist. Nobody calls him Jesus the Baptist, but he's doing your thing and he's taking your people from him, right? And so we may go, well, okay, but John's response is because it's Jesus, right? And he doesn't want to, of course, he's not going to compare himself or like compete with Jesus because you always lose that competition. But what I love about this passage is look down to chapter four. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Jesus wants no part of this discussion. Jesus sees what's going on that the Pharisees figured out that he's, decided, or he's baptizing more people than John and they're starting to talk about it and there's this thing about, oh, who's baptizing more than whom? And Jesus goes, fine, I'm out. Like, I don't, I don't wanna be part of that. So it's not just that John saw that in Jesus and didn't want part of it. Jesus saw what was happening and that, that people were putting him in competition with John. It was like, no, 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 that's not what this is. So, 
in, instead of, felt, of thinking about the people around us, our colleagues, our coworkers, and those in our industry as fellow image bearers united around common purpose, they become obstacles to overcome. They are opposition to defeat. One of the things, I love jazz music. One of the things I love about jazz is the collaborative spirit of jazz. So one of the most famous, probably the greatest jazz album of all time, Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, right? Great, great jazz album. Well, Miles Davis is like one of the great jazz musicians of all time. And yet, like he's a trumpeter, right? So his saxophonists on that album, John Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley. The pianist is Bill Evans. And for those of you who know what that means, that's a big deal. That's like LeBron having Michael Jordan and Kobe, may rest in peace, and all of the rest on his team all at the same time. But whose album is it? It's Miles Davis's album. Probably didn't even know John Coltrane was the saxophonist on that album. But they were there together, and when they got together, guess what they did? They made the greatest jazz album of all time. That's what happens when we can collaborate and not think of what we're doing as competition. But ambition at its core is competitive. Number two, ambition assumes power you don't have. John's response to his disciples in verse 27 says, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. How's that for a response? The disciples come up to him and go, John, Jesus is taking all your guys. They're doing, their baptism numbers are beating ours. They're way up, we're down. What's happening? And, and John goes, listen, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That perspective sets the trajectory for the way John sees his entire life. Where he goes, there were, none of the people that I have baptized did I like earn in some way. Those are not my people that are going over to Jesus. Nothing that I've ever received was something that I didn't just receive from heaven that was not just given to me. Right, like this is true for you. That there is nothing in your life that you can take ultimate credit for. Nothing. You can't take credit for anything, ultimately. You may go, well, but I worked really hard. I don't doubt that. But I've honed my skill. I don't doubt that. But the skill that you honed came from where? The gift that you were born with was not chosen by you. You didn't decide when you were born, where you were born. You didn't decide to whom you were born. You didn't decide your genetic makeup. You didn't decide how tall you were or smart you were or fast you were. You didn't decide any of that because I assume if you had, you'd have chosen better. I know I would have. Right? These are not our choices to make. We, we live with the cards we're dealt, and there's no doubt that some people work harder than others, but um, I, I would challenge you to say um, that you have worked harder than anyone else. There's no doubt that just by virtue of the fact that the majority of the people in this room were born in America in the 21st century is an enormous leg up in the history of the world which is not something we ever could have planned or claimed or taken ownership of. And yet it's defined our lives in every sense. 
So John goes, there is literally not one thing that I have that I was not given from heaven. Therefore, I take credit for none of it. He, he goes on in verse 31. It says, he who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 32. He bears witness. Sorry, verse 34. For whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Here's what John says. Jesus comes from heaven and the very words that he speaks are the words of God. The rest of us come from the earth and say earthly things. In other words, Jesus comes from heaven and speaks the word of God. I come from Portland and speak English poorly. Right, like who, who are we giving credit here for what? When, when we really get down to it, right? John says that everything has been given into the son's hand. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Everything, including outcomes. This is the thing that, that is at the heart of ambition. The arrogance of ambition is the assumption that we can control outcomes. We can control our decisions to a degree. We can control how hard we work. We can control our discipline. We can control what we do and what we say, but we didn't control anything from the beginning, any of our origins, any of anything essential about who we are. And then we've got this little window of control about the things that we say and the things that we do and the work that we do and that we can't control the future and the outcome of that work. Anyone who's ever been passed over for a promotion that they deserved knows the limits of their power knows the limits of, hey, I did the right things, I worked hard, I deserve this, and I got passed over. You, in that moment, experience the limits of your control over outcomes. And honestly, I wish that for all of you. I, I hope and pray and wish that all of you get overlooked for a promotion that you absolutely deserve and they give it to some dummy that, that, like, that Reggie gets it when you don't or Karen does and you just, you hate them and they're the worst but they get it and you don't. I hope that for you because in that moment you have this little opportunity to experience the reality of your weakness. The reality that you control nothing ultimately. So my other son, who's two, he knows about eight words, and most of them are some version of no. And, and so we're cleaning the house yesterday. It's a disaster. And I'm putting trucks into his truck box. And he, one of the words he does know is big truck. It's just one word, big truck. And, uh, and so he's pulling big trucks out of the box while I'm trying to put the big trucks in the box. And he's got an armful of big trucks. And I said, Will, put the big trucks in the box. And he goes, no. And in that moment, he thought that was a viable option, that he would be able to withstand any force that I might be able to bring to the situation and, and by virtue of his strength and his will to say no, that he could control that outcome. Now, I am very, very strong relative to a two-year-old. And so he says no until I go and gently pluck them out of his hand and put them in the box. And I look, see this look on his face of like, but I said no. But I wanted the big truck. 
I thought me saying no would, would end up with me with all the big trucks. And I plucked them as easily as stealing trucks from a baby. <laughs> this is us going, no, this is what's going to happen. I do this, and therefore that's going to happen. The, the narrative of ambition is very seductive to us because it gives us the illusion of control. The illusion of the if-then. If I do these things, then this will be the result. We love that story because it puts us in the middle of it, gives us all the power, and we have the sense that we can bring about the future that we desire. Now, here's the hard part. Often, you can't. Often, you do. Because you're smart people, you're capable people, you're hardworking people, and when you do those things, good things often happen. And so that's why I pray that you will fail and experience the limits of your control. Number three, we gotta go quick before the roof falls in on us, apparently. Number three, ambition is self-involved. Verse 28 he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete, right? Um, ambition is self-involved, like fundamentally self-involved. It is oriented around the self. We obsess over ourselves. We ask, who am I and how do people see me and how will this decision kind of dictate my future and how, if I take this job or if I slide into this role or if I take on this project, how will people see me? How will my boss see me? How will the people above me see me and how will that dictate the road ahead for me? We become obsessed with ourselves. John reminds us, you aren't the center of the story. You're not the groom. You're certainly not the bride. You're like the best man in this story. John goes, I I'm the bridegroom's friend and I'm excited that he's getting married. Now, probably we've all been to a wedding that um, somebody else tried to make about them, right? Whether that's the bride's mom or the best man or whatever. And it's super awkward and terrible because everyone is there knowing like this is about these two, why are you making it about, why'd you wear the white dress too? Like that, why would you do such a thing, right? So John's going, listen, this, this moment's not about you. You're not the center of the story. This story isn't about you, it's about someone else. You are a bit player in the story, but you are not the story itself. But ambition cannot handle that. Ambition always puts us at the center of the story. Everything that's going on around us matters insofar as it affects me. Verse 32 and 33. John says, he bears witness to what he has seen, talking about Jesus, to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. Now this is interesting because the whole premise of this interaction is that everybody's going over to Jesus, that Jesus is becoming very popular. 
And yet, John says, um, no one's accepting his testimony about himself because when you do accept that testimony, what you're doing is you're setting your seal on, or you're, you're stamping the truth that God is real, that God is true. And so it seems like what's happening is Jesus is doing miracles. There's always the possibility he's going to make a bunch of wine. And so people are flocking to him to be around him, to follow him. But then they get there and Jesus goes, hey, I'm the Messiah, the son of God. And they go, hmm, okay. Um, Could we have some more wine first? And they stop short. Because here's the reality. When we profess Christ, we profess that God exists. And if God exists, then why are we fighting for the scraps of of praise and affirmation and these, these little wins and these little desires, these petty little competitions that we engage in when we are confronted with the idea that God exists and there's something much bigger and truer and realer that matters more, it all of a sudden begins to dwarf our petty concerns. So it's much easier to just go and kind of follow Jesus, be around Jesus, even let Jesus baptize you for repentance and all of this, but then kind of go, well, but if that means I can't be at the center of the story, that's a problem. Now, here's, here's what's challenging for your actual work in this. Ambition focuses your work on what it will do for you. Right? You, or you choose a project or you pursue a thing or you actually, the work you do, you do in such a way as to feed your own desire and accomplish your own ambition rather than say what God wants, what a customer needs, or for the just good of the product itself. Right? I, was, I was talking to a doctor uh, after the morning service and he said, this is, this is a, a constant challenge for us because he's kind of more on the research side. And he goes, listen, the, the pressure is to do the kind of research that will get you the next thing, that'll get you the next grant, that'll get you ahead, rather than to be focused on the actual work itself, the, the, the patient in front of you, or the problem as it is to actually just pour yourself into that thing because you're the constant culture and temptation is look beyond that to the kinds of patients, the kinds of research, the kinds kind of work that can get you the thing. So you end up working for the thing and not the patient. And I don't know how, what all of you guys do, but I imagine there's an application for you in that as well. If we're focused on the self when it comes to our work, what aren't we thinking about? Number four, ambition doesn't serve the greatest good. Verse 30, John says, he must increase but I must decrease. In verse 36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Ambition um, is never about the things that matter most in our world. They're always on secondary things, earthly things, temporal things. Not bad things. Your work is good, your work matters, it really does. But it's not an ultimate thing. It's good, but not ultimate, and that's okay. Something has to be third place in your life, and your work is a great thing to be third place in your life. But it's a terrible thing to be first place in your life. And so John goes, listen, when it comes to this, like 
Jesus must get bigger and I must get smaller. And you might go, well, okay, how is Jesus supposed to get bigger in my work? Well, how about this? Start with Jesus getting bigger in you and you getting smaller in you. That maybe he must increase and you must decrease in your own heart. Because see, what happens is that over time, a life that has revolved around career and ambition will not, when the moment comes, be able to make the hard choice when your faith and your work collide. And maybe it'll be a big moment. Maybe it'll be really explicit. Some moment where you're called to the carpet to actually account for your faith. Maybe, and, and I think these moments are coming more often than they have thus far, where you have to stand before someone and answer a question. A question about maybe as simple as, as what did you do this weekend? Maybe as simple as, hey, where'd, where'd you go on vacation when you get back from a mission trip? Maybe it's something like that where you actually have to say, oh, I was at church. I have small group. I have community group. I was on a missions trip. I, maybe you have to actually account for something like that. Maybe it's a big moment where you have to confess your faith at, at risk to your job. But maybe it's something subtler than that. Maybe it's a moment where a value of the kingdom is at odds with the values of your workplace. Most of us aren't working for companies that are doing some evil in the world. Unless you're working at Facebook or something, you're probably not hurting the world in any substantive way. But you, you are going to have moments when, you're, when the values of your corporation and the values of the kingdom begin to come in conflict with one another. And a life that has been oriented around ambition, a life that has been oriented around what you're going to accomplish and who you're going to be and what that's going to be like and what people are going to say about that thing you've done, all of a sudden has trained you so that the answer will inevitably be to choose your work, your career, that end, that goal, that ambition that you have worked for for so long. So th this has a, 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 an effect of being kind of slowly over time affecting the way in which you see the world and what matters in the world. And all our decisions that we make are always kind of run through the hierarchy of what matters to us. And as over time, that ambition and that career has moved to the top. And, and let me be clear, ambition can be just as much in the home with your kids as it is in the workplace. It can be at school, it can be in relationships, it can, it can manifest itself in a million different ways. So just because maybe you, you are at home and not in a, in a workplace career doesn't mean you are immune from the temptation of ambition. So what do we do? Not work hard, not care about our work, just the opposite, actually. Tim Keller wrote a book, a little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And, and you really should read it. If you're not a reader, it's 25 pages. I believe in you. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's really good. And, and in uh, a section of it, he's actually commenting on the, the section from Mere Christianity that I read earlier. And so I want to do the same thing with this passage from Keller that I did with Lewis, where I want to swap out ambition and pride and just see if this makes sense to you. 
Keller says, as Lewis says, ambition uh, is the pleasure of having more than the next person. Ambition is the pleasure of being more than the next person. Lust may drive a man to sleep with a beautiful woman, but at least lust makes him want her. Ambition drives a man to sleep with a beautiful woman just to prove he can do it above the others. Ambition destroys the ability to have any real pleasure from her. Ambition uses things to get something for yourself. Ambition uses good things like work to make a name for yourself, to accomplish a thing for yourself so that people will look at you a certain way and think of you a certain way and give you some value, some affirmation, some position that you want. You're using an otherwise good thing for self-involved purposes. And here's the irony. When you are driven by ambition, you actually care about your work less and you do your work worse as a result. This is a problem with workaholics. Workaholics are often not obsessed with their work. They're obsessed with what their work can give them. They're obsessed with the identity that they gain from their work. Work work is just a lever they pull. It's an excuse. It's a thing they use in order to get the thing that they really want. And in the end, instead of caring, caring about the work itself, they do it in such a way as to get what they really want, which is the position or the money or the identity, in which case the, the work itself becomes secondary. And anytime the thing is secondary, it's not going to get the attention it needs. Good work understands that work life isn't a zero-sum game and that sometimes we can build the best things when we work together. Good work focuses on the quality of the work and working with worthwhile projects, actually pouring yourself into things that do real good for the world. Good work works unto God as your first boss, as as cliche as that may be, meaning we embody God's values and pursue his glory through our work. We think about it that way. Good work believes that work is good but it's not ultimate, which allows us to put it in its place, for it to serve its own purpose rather than serve, be, be kind of used for some other purpose that we have for it. Which, in the end, should hopefully remind us that the only way any of this can come about is because of Jesus' work on our behalf. That's what frees us, right? Like if, if not for Jesus, then yeah, pour yourself, throw yourself into your work because that's, that's the lever you have to pull. That's the thing that you have that you can control to whatever degree you think you can control it to bring about the identity and the affirmation and all of the things that you crave in your life that Jesus has offered to you freely and accomplished for you fully on the cross. His work makes your work possible. In him alone, we have the identity and the affirmation that we need so that we can freely then work for itself and not for the thing it can bring us. Because that thing that we really want, we have fully in Christ. 
rather than kind of this never-ending hamster wheel of trying to accomplish more and more and more and more and more, hoping, desiring, desperately wishing it would ever satisfy the hole in our heart, the hole in our lives that work itself can never fill. Christ has done it. His work makes our work good. His work makes good work possible. But first, we have to see his good work and allow it to inhabit us and allow it to frame the rest of our lives so that we can run freely and fully with the work he's given us. Let's answer a couple questions. First question is this, how do you repent of your ambition? It's a great question, and I think gets to the heart of what I think um, you have to do now. And that is, um, to, to whatever degree that you feel challenged by this or are feeling the desire to fight it, to rationalize it, to talk yourself into uh, the idea that you've got the good version of this, not the bad version, Wherever you feel that tension, I I want you to push into that and begin to tease that out and go, okay, what is it that makes me angry about this? What is it that I'm fighting? What is it that I don't want to admit? What is it that I don't want to give up? And whatever that is, and that's work you've got to do in your heart, certainly not work we can do in this context, but whatever that is, repent of that. Like whatever it is that is keeping you from just embracing like, hey, I, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to think of the people around me as all my competitors. I don't want to be self-involved. I don't want to, uh, you know, kind of orient my whole life around these ends. I don't want to assume that I can control outcomes. I don't want to give myself fully to things that aren't the greatest good. Like it, to whatever, whatever part of you is fighting that, that's what you should go after. That's what you should kind of tease out and go, okay, let, let me explore that moment. What do I feel there? And, and repent of that, because that's what's holding you back from really embracing what God has for you. Uh, two more. One, can you differentiate greed and ambition? They're very similar. They're, they're, they're kissing cousins. Uh, the, the idea, uh, greed is wanting something that, wanting more of something. Ambition is, is oftentimes much more specific, I would say, where there's something out into the future that you want to be, that you want to accomplish, that you want to be thought of as that thing out in the future. Greed can be much more present. I think ambition is just like by its very nature, future oriented. I don't know if that's helpful. Last one's this. I'm deep in a career that praises and rewards ambition and want freedom to do good work separate from ambition. What is a first step and what are some resources and books on the topic to move from ambition to good work? Um, I, I was talking with another person. This was a very interesting conversation this morning. And, and I know that a lot of you are in uh, situations where uh, ambition is actually one of the things that your bosses really want most from you. In fact, one of my best friends is a lawyer. And he talks about how when he meets with partners, they're, they're asking, okay, what do you want to be? You want to be a partner? You want to be a partner? You want to be a partner? What do, you, what do you want out of this job? And there's a real pressure, cultural pressure to want the next thing. And, and, and I get that. Like, I don't, I don't get it personally. Like, it's not my world. I'm, I'm supposed to not be ambitious. I'm supposed to be lowly and humble in heart. Um, but I can, I can understand that. And, and here's what I would say to that question or to those of you who are in that kind of a, a culture. 
is that when you sit down with your boss and they go, what do you want? There's nothing wrong with saying, man, I love my work. I want more. I want to keep being challenged. I want to keep working hard. I love this place. I love what we're doing. I'm, I'm passionate about the work we're doing. I'm passionate about the projects. Please continue to give me more without it having to be connected to something, some identity, some outcome that you have no control over. And I think that, you know, I think that there's a way to articulate that difference that is honest, that is good. And if at the end of the day, you didn't say, man, I really want a promotion. I really want to be that guy. I really want to be the general manager. I really want to be the director of this and that. And they go, well, he is just not ambitious enough. She just doesn't want it enough. Oh, well. And I know it's easier for me to say because it's not my life and, and I'm, you're not going to come live with me. You're not going to come live with me if you lose your job. So I know it's easy for me to say, but at some point there has to be a, hey, I got to live out of my convictions. I've got to be able to say what's true and all of these things should be true. I want to work hard. I care about the work. I care about being good. I want to keep being challenged. But if you don't say, I really want to make partner, and that's the thing I've oriented my whole life, I'll give anything to be partner, and that's the thing that makes you not partner, good. Don't be partner. Because they want your soul, and it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. The last part of that question was, is there a good resource? And I want to recommend one book. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor. Uh, that's about faith and work. It's really good. It's really worth your time. Um, the other thing I would say is uh, one of the things we do here at ICON is uh, faith and work leadership cohorts. Uh, we've done a couple. We did a couple of them last year. We're going to do them again this year um, where they are kind of explorations of faith and work from theological perspective meant to be leadership development for the workplace. And uh, if that's something that's interesting to you, love to talk to you more about that. Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.